Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22 is where we'll be, so if you'd grab your Bibles or open your phones, even if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, you can just type in Mark chapter 8, whatever pops up in Google, you'll be able to get there uh, pretty quick. We're going to look at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 38. Mark 8, 22 through 38. I want to read... One little section of verses from 31 to 33, uh, they'll pop up on the screen, just to whet your your appetite for where we're going, uh, because there's an element of a punch in this passage that we'll get to, and I want to give you a preview of the punch. So Mark 8, 31 through 33, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. And the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let me pray one more time. God, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear this morning. You tell us uh, many times throughout the scriptures and you told many people that those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So God, would you give us uh, those ears this morning that we might find true life. God, you tell us that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. God, grant us faith through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd be lying uh, if I said there weren't moments uh, like today uh, fairly frequently in my life. As a pastor, I end up in multiple churches kind of throughout redemption and at times in other churches. But a day like today, July 5th, after July 4th, to look at a room like this and go, why in the world would this many people show up to church? Like, why is, why is this? And yet, I'm, I'm not a fool, and I know um, everybody would answer Jesus, but I'm also not a fool, that I know there are many people in this room who don't come primarily for Jesus. Right? There's multiple reasons. You get dragged here by somebody. Uh, you're just sheerly inquisitive. You're trying to figure it out um, in the midst of it. But that question spans way past this room and way past this church and across the whole entire world. John Ortberg, in a new book uh, titled Who Is This Man, which is an outstanding book, uh, if you guys like to read and want to pick it up, regardless of where you are in your faith journey, if you'd say you're not a Christian or you've been a Christian for years, it's a fantastic book. But he says this. He says, normally when somebody dies, their impact on the world immediately begins to recede. So he's about to talk about Jesus here, and he's saying, normally when somebody dies, their impact on the world immediately begins to recede. As I write this, our world marks the passing of digital innovator Steve Jobs. Now, if you don't know who Steve Jobs is, he's the guy who started Apple and made it what it is. Ortberg says, someone wrote um, that 10 years ago, our world had Bob Hope, Johnny Cash, and Steve Jobs. Now we have no jobs, no cash, and no hope. 
He then goes back to Jesus, and he's speaking about what he said at the very beginning. He says, but Jesus inverted this normal human trajectory, the trajectory that when someone dies, their impact on the world immediately begins to recede. He said, Jesus inverted this normal human trajectory. As he did so, many other things. Jesus' impact was greater 100 years after his death than during his life. It was greater still 500 years after. 500 years after. After a thousand years, his legacy laid the foundation for much of Europe. And after 2,000 years, he has more followers in more places than ever. Now, here's what's astounding about that statement that many of us don't get. And I promise it doesn't entirely make sense. But Ortberg is saying, and I would say that the Bible testifies, that the reason for this influence was predominantly because of Jesus' death. That's not typically a word that we associate with great amounts of influence. Death means loss. And yet, Ortberg's saying that through Jesus' death, all of this influence came. And I think we're going to see today that it wasn't just Jesus' physical death, but that in Jesus' life, he took on the very form or shape of death over and over and over again and then said, follow me. And that's how we get to the point that today there are more followers of Jesus in more places than ever. It's through Jesus' death and the form of his death being taken on by his followers. So let's enter in. Uh, one of the best places uh, we can go to learn about Jesus, the actual person, is in the Gospels, and we're studying through the Gospel of Mark. And so let's start in verse 22. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, brought to Jesus a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. The way this section starts is that people coming to Bethsaida, Jesus coming there, and then people, once again, bringing to Jesus a man and begging Jesus to heal the man. Now, we have no idea why, who these people were. It doesn't say. You'd assume friends. But maybe not. But what they did is they brought to Jesus a need, a man who was blind. They put him in front of Jesus, and then they begged Jesus to heal him. Now, the reality of these people who brought the blind man and who begged Jesus to heal the blind man, could there could be a thousand different stories behind it. But let's say one of them could be that we may not think about is maybe out of all that the blind man held on to and all that the blind man wanted, that he rounded up enough money to pay people to take him to Jesus, that he had heard about a man who was giving sight to the blind, who was helping crippled people walk. 
who was raising certain people from the dead. And he said, I need to be around him to just get him to touch me. This man was not unique. It's the same as the woman who for years was bleeding that just wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. But it was out of his angst, out of his burden, of out of his fears and his concerns and his worries that he went to these people. And maybe he said, only if he touches me will I pay you the money. So they're begging him. Maybe. Far more likely, it's people who really loved this man. And they shared his burdens with him. He needed people to take him there because he couldn't see. He didn't know how to go right or he didn't know how to go left. He didn't know how to get to Bethsaida. He didn't know how to get to where Jesus was because he was blind. He needed somebody to guide him. But not just that. That this blind man, like many people with disabilities, experienced being ostracized unlike any other normal, as we may say, able-bodied person would. He's probably deeply, deeply lonely. He probably knows that many people won't even look at him because if they were to look at him, they'd have to stop, forego what they're doing to engage him. Maybe even they'd have to help him. So he feels isolated. He feels alone. He feels he has all this stuff within him that he could offer the world and he could do for the world, but he can't get a job because he can't see. He's bringing his stuff to Jesus, not just his body. The blindness represents the angst, the anxiety, the pain, and the anguish that lies within him for being blind. And so he, first and foremost, is the one begging to be healed. Now, if it's people who love him, people that love someone are alongside of them, and they take on with them, they bear the pain of that person, both because they love them, and because they love them, they won't leave them, and because they won't leave them, they bear that pain on themselves. They have to forsake things. They have to give up things. And so if there's an opportunity for freedom from all of that, they're going to come bring their stuff to Jesus and beg him for deliverance. Beg him for healing. This is true of all of us. Whether it feels like you are initiating a move to Jesus, you're come, coming to him bringing things. You're coming to him begging for things. Whether you verbalize it or you don't, your heart is begging for things. You're after stuff. That's not bad. But the pain, the anguish, the anxieties, the fears, the concerns, the quest and desire for life abundantly, that's the whole reason people move into any self-help category and the reason we'd move into Jesus. It may be the very reason you're sitting in this room and somebody has invited you is they see within you a desire for life that's worthy of the word, or they see within you pain and anguish that they want to help you get freed from, and they're saying, you need Jesus. You're like, I don't even know what that means. It sounds weird, but maybe I'll give him a try. Or if you study the Bible you lo longer, you know that Jesus and God reaches out to us and will pull us to himself that we might experience this type of healing this type of liberation, this type of freedom. It's sad that in our culture, uh, many of us don't want to talk about what we need to bring or what we're begging for because that would look weak. And yet, the Bible's very clear that that's the starting place with Jesus. The starting place with Jesus is in our needs, is in bringing that to him. So you may sit in this room and you go, here's my real tangible need. 
I don't know how I'm going to pay the electric bill this month. And the bills just continue to pile one on top of the other. You may sit in this room and a huge relationship you have is massively strained. And you are in deep, deep pain about it. You may be in this room with deep physical pain or deep concerns. Or you may have fears about what's going to happen tomorrow or fears about what's happening to our worlds. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. That's normal regardless if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Every human being experiences that. The unique part of this is Jesus. Because when much of the world would try to avoid that, Jesus is the one who stands in the place and says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's unique to Jesus. I'll tell you, as a parent, I feel like Jesus sometimes, right? Everybody bringing in their stuff, everybody begging me for things, pulling on your legs, my eight-year-old son begging me to figure out his flag football team when everybody's on vacation, I can't get a hold of him, he's asking me questions there's no possible way I know the answer to, and I'm sitting there like, let me off the hook here, this is insane, I cannot do all of this for you. You may feel like that as a boss, or you may feel like that as an employee, as people are levying stuff at you, and everything you want is just to avoid it. Like, let me just get away from them. The kids are over there, I'm going to be over here. My boss is over there, I'm going to be over here, right? You just feel like people constantly do it, but Jesus stands there and says, come to me. That alone makes him a little bit unique, regardless of what you believe about him, is to go, if he's just bearing the weight, bearing the begging, if you will, bearing the burdens of all of these people and says, keep bringing them, you got to at least at that moment go, who is this man? So he takes this man and he heals him. Very interesting enough, uh, this is one of the only places Jesus heals in stages. He places his hands upon the man after he spits in him which is crazy, um, puts his hands on the man, the man opens his eyes, he says, I see people, but they look like trees. Jesus puts his hands on him again, and now he sees clearly. We're going to get to this in a little bit, but that's very interesting, and it leads us right into this next point of this moment where those who followed and were along with Jesus were incrementally in stages beginning to understand who Jesus was. It didn't just come all at once. It came to them in stages like this man's healing did. Look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now this is one thing I love about Bible study. It's just one little plug for why we should really study the Bible. And it's this. When you study the Bible... Um, just even a little bit, things begin to pop out at you you wouldn't otherwise have known. For instance, when they move from Bethsaida to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, this is not just like saying, we're going to move on from Northeast Gilbert, where we sit now, into Chandler, which is basically walking over the railroad tracks on Elliott, just getting to the other side, and now you're in Chandler. That's not what this was. Even today, a modern drive on modern roads in a modern vehicle or automobile, this drive would take you about an hour to two hours. And in fact, most commentators would say, Jesus could have probably gone a little shorter route, but he chose to go around this water and whatever. And you've got to sit there and go, why in the world are they walking this long? And why, if they're walking this long, if it's true, did he take a little bit longer of a route? Because we read this little section right here is very short but it took a very long time, and it revolved around this question that Jesus asked his disciples, these two questions. The first one being this, 
Who do people say that I am? So these are men who've walked with Jesus, whom Jesus called to follow him. They began to follow him, and he's always doing stuff that they don't get, and at times that they disagree with. They're telling him at times, don't do that, and he's saying, no, I'm going to do it. At other times, he's doing stuff that they're just like, I don't totally get. And all the time, he's doing stuff that's undoing them. All the time. So now he says, who do people say that I am? And their response is, they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So he's walking with them. He's taking them on a long journey to ask this question, that they would consider it deeply. Not on the surface level, but they would consider it deeply. Who do people say that I am? I love this about Jesus because it's always easier for human beings to talk about what everybody else is thinking, what everybody else is doing, what everybody else is saying as opposed to themselves. So one of the greatest places to start as you're trying to move somebody down the field is to say, what do you think about what they think? What do you think about what they do? And they begin to talk. Who do people say that I am? And they say Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets, which we don't have the time to get into this, but very shortly, it is very interesting that the way in which Jesus was living his life was leading people to come to the conclusion that who he was was John the Baptist or Elijah. Now, if you don't know anything about John the Baptist or Elijah, let's just start here. They were weird They were weird, but what they very, very clearly were was fearless men of God. Fearless men of God who spoke out against evil, who spoke out against injustice, and who proclaimed a message of hope, and here's the key, proclaimed a message of hope to those who were deeply confused and to those who were suffering. So Jesus was living his life in such a way that he was amongst those who were suffering, amongst those who were confused, promoting a message of hope amongst them. And then at the same time, where he saw evil and injustice, he called a spade a spade, if you will. They said, he's like Elijah or John the Baptist. He's not like the rest of our culture. They're saying, who many times look at bad things and say they're good, or look at good things and say that they're bad. No, he calls evil, evil, and good, good. And he does it amongst the oppressed, the poor, the vulnerable, the suffering, and the confused. So he starts there. Who do people say that I am? And then, because Jesus knows who all humans really are, that they're better at pointing the finger out there, who do they say I am? And then he goes, probably hours along this walk then he goes he lets them talk amongst themselves they're talking they're pontificating about everything out there and then he goes likely i think at this moment stopping looking at them and going okay now who do you you say that i am i'm convinced that mark when he penned these words intended the readers of this you and i To hear that question, not just posed to the disciples, but to us, who do you say that Jesus is? And I think the Holy Spirit penned those words in such a way that you would hear them as though Jesus were saying it in the first person. Who do you say that I am? This is a climax point in the book of Mark. 
The moment in which Jesus is displaying all of these things about the realities of the kingdom of God to climax at the point that he would say, who do you, 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 and you, who do you say that I am? Now, here's the truth. The truth is we all sit in here and most of us sit in here and would say, well, I say you're the Christ, the son of the living God, God in human flesh. But what Jesus is about to do is to say, but do you really? Because that means something. Because Peter responds just like that. Peter responds at this moment. And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the end of verse 29. Other translations say, the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in other translations, Jesus then responds and says, yes, Peter, Simon Marjona. But flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. God has. But the fundamental climax point is Peter's correct answer. You are the Christ. Now, you guys got to understand something. That's not like us sitting in church today going, who am I? I am the Christ. Because these people, along with Peter, viewed the Messiah as one that was coming to rule on the earth right here, right now. Messiah meant Christ, Savior, but Savior meant implicitly in the Hebrew mind, meant Lord. It didn't just mean he's the one who saves me from my sins. Now, they got something wrong. They felt like it was going to be a conquer right here, right now, to overtake Caesar and to free the Jewish and Israelite people and all of those under oppression. They missed it that God was actually on a different path to defeat all the powers of darkness that lay behind the dark powers of their present reality. All of the things that made pain a reality, that made blindness a reality, that made oppression a reality, that made poverty a reality, that made disability a reality, all of that sin he came to defeat. They didn't totally get that. But here's something I think we don't totally get. We don't get the other side. That when Jesus is called the Christ, he's being called the king, who's in fact what the Bible says is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that means something for the way we live our lives now. That we don't have the option to sit here today and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and to have it very marginally affect our lives That's what Jesus is concerned about in this passage. Who do you say that I am? And if you say I'm the Christ, he's about to show you that means something. It's, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day over lunch and he works for the Chicago Cubs and he works as the mental skills coordinator. I don't know what that is, but it sounds a pretty big deal. And basically he said, it's amazing the number of times I have to sit with our players who say, I want to be an all-star. And he said, you sit in enough of these conversations that you want it, when they say, I want to be an all-star, you want them to go, then be it. Like, you just want to say it that clear. Then be it. He said, but the reality is, they think I just want to be an all-star is as easy as it is. And they don't know everything that goes in. Hard work, time, sacrifice, persistence being long-suffering, learning to deal with failure that goes into being an all-star in baseball. It's a little bit like with my boys. They said, we want to start a business. Let's just go out and sell stuff. I'm like, what stuff? 
I don't know, we could sell all kinds of different stuff. Well, what stuff? Well, food. What food? The food in the refrigerator. That's not your food. <laughs> so then I'm teaching them about this thing called costs, that if you want to sell lemonade, you've got to buy lemons and water. If you don't want to do it, you've got to buy lemonade. We want to make root beer floats. Who's going to buy the root beer floats? You are. Then you're going to pay me back if you want to do business, right? There's a reality to it. This is what Jesus is doing. You want to do business? He's like, you want to call me the Christ? You want to call me Lord? I'm not certain you entirely understand what that means. Jesus uh, is clearly the great disruptor. I said this earlier that um, many times the disciples are perplexed by him, many times they disagree, but all the time they're being undressed by Jesus. And I'm going to be really honest with you. I came to Christ at 17. I had basically one more year of high school before I came to Arizona to play baseball here at Arizona State. That's the reason I cannot stand the University of Arizona Wildcats. It's baked in my blood. Um, I got Jesus in a pretty powerful way, in such a way that I couldn't even totally tell you, like, here's the ministry that it was, here's the local church that it was. I had none of that. I basically now can trace it back to two families that were praying for their friends' kids. That's what I got. And God absolutely disrupts me. A couple years into it, I think I got Jesus. A couple years later from that, say I'm now in four years, I'm like, I can't believe that a couple years ago I think I got Jesus. My life has been very much like the man that was healed in stages. There's a moment when Jesus touches your eyes, you come off and you're like, I've never seen before and now I can see it's kind of cloudy. Then he puts his hands on and you go, I can now see clearly. And he did see clearly. The reality is for most of us as we follow Jesus, not for most of us, for all of us that see Jesus, there's stages, there's steps to this game and Jesus continues to open your eyes up more and more. And I'm going to be really honest. The last two years of my life, really intensely in the last year, around the content of Jesus' teaching us in this passage, there have been huge moments where Jesus has shown himself as the great equalizer. And what I mean by the great equalizer, have you ever heard the phrase um, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross? It's amazing how often in our, our life and even in our life of faith that deep down we would say cognitively, yeah, we're no better than anybody else, but in reality, we really think we are. Not really think God, we really think we are. There's been huge moments where that's been equalized primarily through this, that the more you stare at the life of Christ and you understand that this is what being a Christian is about, is being made more and more like Jesus as Paul says to the Romans, that you've been predestined from before the foundations of time to be conformed into the image of God's Son. That's in the image of Jesus. When you realize that's what it's all about and you stare at the face and the life of Jesus Christ, you get absolutely undone. And I'm going to be honest, the last year I've had numbers of moments going, I can't do that. And to be honest with you, I've had moments where I've gone, I don't know if I want to do that. Because the call of Christ is so significant and so different than what I want, or let me say it better, than I think I want, I think at the deepest heart of mine, I want what he wants. But what it means and what you have to walk through and where you have to go, I'm going to be honest with you. When you look at him, if you for a moment 
have the sense that you can look down on, oh, but those people, those idiots, those stupid people that think like that. I'm telling you, you have not rightly or even remotely clearly seen the face or the life of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. And so then he moves on. And he begins to teach them. He goes, then we need to teach you what this means. He begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So you call me the Messiah, then you must believe this. That the Son of Man, me, the Lord, whom you think is going to be triumphalistic, who's going to conquest, who's going to take over Rome, he actually must, here's a key word that should come out in 3D to you right now, suffer. He must suffer. If life would be brought, if healing would be brought, if restoration would be brought, if freedom from oppression and freedom from disability, freedom from physical pain, physical from emotional pain, from spiritual pain must be brought, if sin were to be defeated, if Satan triumphed over, put under the feet of God, then he must suffer. And he must die. He must suffer, be rejected, die, be killed, and then, and only then. Okay, just say that really quick, because we're going to get to it. It's going to make sense in a minute. Say, then and only then. Only after he suffers, only after he's rejected, only after he's killed and dies, then and only then, three days later will he rise. He says it to him, look at the text, plainly, no ifs, no ands, no buts about it, as they say, plainly, so plainly that the same Peter who just said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, goes, hey Jesus, I'm going to try to do this politely, but, and he takes him aside, look at the passage, Peter takes him aside, he's like, Jesus, we got to talk, puts him here, doesn't rationalize with him. Right? Doesn't go, well, doesn't caveat it. He rebukes him. Peter rebukes him. No, 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 Jesus. That ain't the way it's going down. What are you talking about? I mean, he basically saying, you're a fool. You're an idiot. This isn't the way it's going to happen. Now, at this point, there is the great, 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 great rebuke reversal. Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples. Now, just stop. You've got to slow down in the text a little bit. Jesus, at this moment, looks at all the rest of the disciples, and he knows we got a teaching moment here for far greater amounts of people than just Peter. So he looks around, he sees the disciples, and then the rebuke reversal. He rebukes Peter, and he says, get behind me. Satan. Okay, so Peter was trying to be professional with Jesus, get him to the side, then rebuke him. Now, Jesus is clearly not slightly concerned with professionalism and certainly not concerned with being what they would say is polite. He clearly, as he had looked at his disciples, said it in a tone loud enough that they would hear it, and he says, you're satanic. What you're saying right now is of Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. He addresses the problem. Peter, you're buying in 
You are so saturated, you are so steeped in the ways of men that you, in fact, the way, think, you think the way to get forward is the way up. You think the way to move yourself on is to keep climbing the ladder up. And he said, that is a satanic, demonic message. Get behind me, Satan. Now, do something with me, because we're going to walk through what he said we must believe. Because if you're a Christian, you believe something, and you believe in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, okay? So Jesus, who had life, put your finger right here above you, because I want you to remember this and think about this over and over. This is everywhere we're going to be right now until the end of this message. Starts with life, it moves rejection into death. Now, stop at the bottom. You're going to make a J. Think about the letter J. You're starting here, you're going backwards though. Most of us, how would I write a J? Most of us would start from the top to the bottom. We're starting at the bottom point. Life, going to death, starting life, death, then resurrection. Then and only then resurrection. Do it again. Life, death. Say then and only then. Then and only then resurrection. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. That's what you have to believe. And if you believe it, if you believe it and you say I'm the Christ, then you've got to live it. Because that's what he said, right? Follow me. He says, if you believe it, that Christianity isn't just about believing, it's about becoming these things. It's about believing upon Christ and becoming like him. It's about seeing him, and as we see him, we become more like him. Now he says, count the cost, brothers and sisters. Count the cost, because then he moves on and calling the crowd. Now he goes, it's beyond the disciples. He gets everybody around. And he's about to say, you want to know what it is to call me the Christ and to follow me? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will then and only then save it. Now, this is where it gets real. This is where you separate, as people would say, the men from the boys or the women from the girls. This is the moment Jesus is going, this is real, is that life is only found in death. He said it another place, John chapter 12. It'll come up on the screen, and he uses an image to explain this very same message that he's stating in John chapter 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone and isolated. But if it dies, then it will bear much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever who loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Keep that up there for a minute. Now, these are the moments when I said Jesus is the great disruptor and the great equalizer that I go, I don't know if I want it. Because I hear the word death and like all of us go, we want to run from it. It's not comfortable. It doesn't feel safe, it's certainly not secure, and it's definitely, definitely not convenient. But Jesus made you and I. He made all the humans of the earth, and he says, I know you want life that's worthy of the word. You want abundant life. It's why when Jesus said, I came to give life and give it to the full, the people of all types go, I want full life. I want abundant life. Give it to me. But then we have all these things in our mind that go, that's the abundant life. It's this, and it's that, 
it's these things, it's this place, it's my respect from my spouse, it's freedom from my kids, from their illnesses and diseases, it's more money, it's a better job, it's a better position, it's respect from people in my workplace. It's none of this nonsense of all these people that are trying to persecute me, it's none of that. And Jesus goes, oh, you know what? Remember the word I said first about me? He must suffer. Here's what he's saying. You too must suffer. And not just because it comes upon you. But if you're going to follow in my ways, then where there's oppression, you're going to move into it. Where there's injustice, you're going to speak against to it. Where there's unrighteousness, you're going to wave the flag. Where there's pain and anguish and hurt amongst the people, you're going to go there to weep with those who weep. Where there's celebration, you're going to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what it is to call me the Christ. That's what it is to follow me. And hey, by the way, something's going to get in the way of that. You want to know what it is? You. Hence, deny yourself. Take up your cross, a tool of execution. You, in fact, are going to live an excruciating life. But the paradox is this. The great turnaround is this. Your life is found in losing it. You want your life? Lose it. Now, what would this look like? Whether you're a roommate, a spouse, a child, or a parent, in your house, you have the moment where you've been dying to watch that show. We're going to just put it real street level. You've been dying to watch that show. You start watching it. You're into it. It didn't just start. You're into it right at the point it's getting good. And then your friend, your roommate, your child, your spouse, your parent says, hey, I need you to do something. You're like, I'm going to act like I don't hear it. They say it again, and the third time they say it again. Now, three days earlier, imagine, somebody said to you, hey, who do you live with? My best friend in the world. I live with my best friend in the world. I'd do anything for him. Anything? Anything. I'd stand in front of a train for him. I'd take a bullet for him. Go back to three days later, sitting on the couch. So you take a bullet for him, but you won't get off the couch for him. That's funny, but it's real. If I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, I must know this. Death, hear this, death is at the center of love. You must die to yourself in order to love your neighbor as yourself. You must die to yourself in order to love your spouse as yourself. You must die to yourself in order to love your kids as yourself. We live in this day and age right now where we're terrified of ISIS. And if we really want the great equalizer to be there, it's like if you were sitting there at that point, you're about to have your head chopped off and be beheaded. And all, there's all kinds of people, I wouldn't deny Christ, I wouldn't deny Christ, I'd die for Christ. In that moment on the couch, if you won't die for Christ, I promise you, you won't die for Christ when ISIS is sitting at your doorstep. That's where it gets real, is that it's as little as that all the way to as big as that. You must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You want to know why thousands of people around the world now experience Jesus? Yes, because of the death of Christ, but the death in Christ inspired and empowered by his Holy Spirit a people who are willing to live what Jesus just said who are willing to live this in real, everyday life. Make the sacrifices. Why in the world would somebody adopt a child out of the foster care system? 
Why in the world would a family come alongside another family that are in the midst of a horrific divorce and take on all of their pain with them? Why in the world would somebody choose to live in impoverished neighbor, neighborhoods? Why would the Gregoires here, who are here today move all the way to North Africa? Why would somebody possibly do that? Because they've been inspired by Jesus and his message for this. And it's as real as you in the workplace. Why in the world would this guy get up and serve all of his other employees? Why would he forego that level of profit so that his co-workers could get it? Why in the world at this moment would you stand up as you love all kinds of people? Why would you cross your neighborhood lines to engage those people that are radically different you in viewpoint and say, what do you actually think when it might bump, bump up immediately against that which you believe? Why would you engage the people across the street who are same-sex, now married partner, who have adopted children? Why would you engage them? And at the same time, after you've developed a relationship, why at that moment when it's totally uncomfortable and they go, what do you think about all of this? Why would you go, well, I, I don't really think that's the way God designed human beings to be. And yet I love you. And yet I want relationship with you, but yet I'm unwilling to forsake the words of Jesus as Jesus said here, whoever's ashamed of me, me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. All of those, I try to use as many examples as possible to say all of those are deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That on behalf of the other, you would lose your life, but here's the promise. That in the loss of your life, then and only then, you find your resurrection. The abundant life, the full life that Jesus came to give is found in resurrection. But if you say, I want the abundant life, and he said, it's found only through going through death to yourself. Then you see why people, many times when Jesus taught, said, see ya, that teaching's too hard. And he looks at his disciples and says, are you going to go also? And what did Peter say? Where would we go? You hold the words of eternal, abundant life. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you for your grace and your mercy to us. God, give us your Holy Spirit that we would believe your truth that only through the loss of life will we find our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.